Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 14. First Samuel chapter 14, and if you're following along in your sermon schedule, uh, then that's good. And I hope you're reading the, the passages before you come to the service. It will help you in doing that. But one of the things that is always challenging is writing the titles for these long before I study them. And so after studying this, I think a better title for this message, instead of Saul's Decline, although that could be part of it, a better title would be The Agony of Victory. You know, typically you have the, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. But here, you have a great victory that takes place. God causes Jonathan to win a decisive victory, but it's stained by unnecessary trouble. And so it makes the victory both sweet in that they win against the Philistines, but also bitter. It reminds me of what happened to the Detroit Lions in 1991. It was November 17th and the Detroit Lions were 6-4 and four that year. They were playing at the Pontiac Silverdome against the 3-7 and seven L.A. Rams. And they, they would later make the playoffs, but, but for this game it was important for them to win. And Mike Utley was in his third year in the league, and he was starting for the Lions as a right guard. He was six foot six, 290 pounds, and his job was to protect the quarterback and also to make key blocks for their running back, Barry Sanders. Well, their quarterback for that year was Rodney Pete, but he was injured earlier in the year. And so for that game, um, Eric Kramer was there. And in the fourth quarter, Mike Utley was making a block for his quarterback, and he was trying to take out the legs of the Rams defender. And while he, he was making that block, he, he, he landed his, he, his head landed on the turf, and it was kind of a freak accident in that he, he fractured his fifth fifth sixth and seventh cervical vertebrae, making him paralyzed. And the Lions went on to win that game, and they moved to 7-4, and four, and they would actually win the next five games, go finish the season at 12-4. and four. But, but I'm sure at the end of that game and the end of that season that the Lions had a mixture of both joy and sadness. And, and that's very much like what's going on here with Israel because at the conclusion of this battle against the Philistines here in chapter 14, there is some joy because they defeat their enemies, but there also is a great amount of sadness because of the way that Saul um, brings about some agony within the, the people. So instead of reading the whole chapter, it's a little bit of a longer chapter, I'll just read the first 23 verses of our text and then we'll look at the rest of it as we go. This is the Word of God. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, and Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the south opposite Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many, 
or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands. And this shall be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes which they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor-bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer put some to death after him. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and all the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, Behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously who went up with them all around in the camp, even those also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Bethaven. Those who are concerned more about the approval of God than about their position or power will do great things for God. Those who are concerned more about the approval of God than about their position or power will do great things for God. And here we have a contrast between those two kinds of people. The type of person who, who is more concerned about the approval of God, Jonathan, and the type of person who is more concerned about the advancement of his own name, his position and power, that's Saul. And so let's look at both of these. In this section, we really see uh, Jonathan and, and, and the fact that he's more concerned about the approval of God. And so here's the, the first thing that we see. Those who are concerned about the approval of God will take risks to advance his program. Those who are, appro- those who are concerned about the approval of God will take risks to advance his program, verses 1 through 23. Jonathan here leads, he really steps out in faith, doing something very risky militarily. At this time, Saul in verses 2 and 3 is where? He's back in Gibeah, sitting underneath a pomegranate tree, not really a place of, of, pro, uh, uh, of being in a place of proaction. Right? He's, not, he's not ready to bat, do battle. He, he's not on the, on the front lines, ready to... To, to, to take the Philistines out. No, he's sitting there being a little bit passive when it comes to dealing with this problem. You remember in the last chapter, the Philistines are starting to close in on them. They're taking some of the key roads and, and Israel's in a really difficult spot. So Saul is waiting for something to happen and yet 
Notice the secrecy of Jonathan's attack. Look at the end of verse 1. But he did not tell his father. Now, why do you suppose that Jonathan attacked secretly? I think part of it was he knew that his father, Saul, was not going to allow it. That that Saul would only serve as an obstacle to his advance. And, And Jonathan, I think, was confident in what God would do. It's very similar to what happened in chapter 13, verse 3, when when Jonathan did something very similar. You see, he saw an opportunity to take out a garrison of Philistines and he did it. And the result was that Israel then tried to, to, uh, to recover. In that case, the Philistines started a swarm around them. Well, this, this activity on, on the part of Jonathan was very risky in verses 4 and 5. He, he, has, to, he has to climb or to scale these two, these two cliffs. One is called Bozes which means slippery, and the other is called Sina, which means thorny. So it's very likely that he's probably up on one side and and then there's probably some kind of a ravine. So he has to go down one of those and then up another one, so slippery and thorny. And in order to get to where the Philistines were. And from a human perspective, Jonathan was destined for failure. He didn't have the king's approval. He, He only had him and his armor bearer and so he's going against the steepest of odds if you're just looking at it from a purely human perspective. And yet, if, if, if Jonathan were concerned primarily about his position and his power, I don't think he would have taken this risk. Because how could he take his father's throne? How could he succeed his father if he was dead? Right? He's, he's making a very risky move for the sake of God's program, not primarily for his own position or power. So what would compel Jonathan to take such a great risk? And the answer, I've already suggested um, that it's his faith, but I think he's doing it for God. But I want you to see that in the text. Notice his rationale in verses 6-10. through 10. Jonathan's rationale for taking this risk. First, he saw the enemy of God as his enemy. Then Jonathan, Jonathan said, verse 6, to his armor bearer, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now this should remind us, I think, if, for those of uh, you who have been around the Scriptures for a long time, it should remind you of what David would say later in 1 Samuel 17 when he would go up against Goliath. One of his great problems with Goliath is that he was opposed to God. He was, he was an uncircumcised Philistine. That is, he's not a part of the covenant people of God and therefore opposed to the true and living God. So Jonathan, first of all, sees... God's enemy has his enemy. Secondly, he was confident in God's power. Look at the second part of verse 6. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Christians, this is what it looks like to take a risk for God. It is, without knowing the, in, the outcome, we move to wise action while trusting in the power of God. I know that God has the power to do X. I don't know if he's going to do it in this specific situation, but I'm going to step out and, and give it a try and see if God's in it. And that's what faith often looks like. Jonathan's, uh, Jonathan's armor bearer is right behind him in verse 7, and here's his plan in verses 8-10. through 10. His plan is to see if God was in it. And the way that he would determine it was to seek God's will. Okay? Is God in this or am I just you know, acting foolishly? Now, the, 
we need to understand a little bit about the geography. I mentioned that, that these two cliffs were, were slippery and thorny, very likely. And, and the Philistines were probably in a position where they weren't too concerned if someone would attack from that, that spot because it was so difficult to scale those cliffs, or at least one of those cliffs, it was so difficult to scale those cliffs that they didn't have to guard against it. You would guard against something that was a little bit easier to, to get at. And, and so, um, so they didn't even need to, to, to guard this. And so for Jonathan, he needed, to know, he needed to know if God was in it. And so he needed to seek God's will. Now, his seeking of God's will is different than our seeking of God's will. For him... He needed a sign because he didn't have the completed scriptures as we do. And so he, he asked for a sign. And, and it's true that Gideon was able to determine God's will this way. And it's true that, that the Old Testament believers and even to, into part of the New Testament, they were casting lots in order to determine God's will. But I would suggest to you on this side of the completed scriptures, we no longer need to look for a sign. In fact, I don't think God primarily works in that way, if at all. I think he, he, the fundamental way that He speaks to His people and directs us and gives us what He wants us to do is through His completed Scriptures. In other words, God has told you everything that He wants you to know in His Word. So, if you have a decision to make, He's told you everything He wants you to know in the Word of God. Now, He hasn't told you the exact decision that you need to make, but, but in some cases we can narrow it down and get rid of some things that we know that are not His will. And God's told us everything that we need. That's clear from Second Peter 1, verse 3, that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Old Testament believers were not privileged with this great resource that we have before us. And so this is a great treasure that we love. But for Jonathan, he needed to find out from God. So he makes up this this essentially a sign, a, a test to see if God was in it. And he says, if they call us up, then we know God's in it. If not, then we'll stay here and see what happens. In verse 11, the Philistines mock Jonathan. They say, oh, you're finally coming out of your holes. Remember the last time that we saw this in chapter 13, the Philistines start to swarm. They take all, over all the key spots in the battle. And, and now where all the Israel's, Israelites go? They all hide in caves and... and um, and go back home and so, so on. And Philistines say, oh, you're coming out of your holes now. You're finally starting to, to see the light of day. And Jonathan gets the response that he's looking for in verse 12. They say, sure, you can come up. And notice what they say there at the end. Um, let's see, So the men of the garrison say, come up to us and we will tell you something. In other words, we'll teach you a lesson. We'll show you how to fight. We'll, we'll show you something. And so when they called him up, they were likely saying, go ahead and try to scale this cliff that, that uh, separates us. You're going to die before you arrive. And if you arrive and you're still alive, then we'll kill you very easily. And so they probably didn't even watch as they were climbing. The Philistines allow Jonathan and his armor bearer to come. It shows their complacency. They're not afraid of Jonathan and his servant. Really, they were no threat. But, G- but Jonathan knows that the Lord is in it. Look at the end of verse 12. He says to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given. Those four words, the Lord has given, is the exact translation of the name Jonathan. The Lord has given. And, and so he sees in this that God has given this, this uh, group of, uh, of rebellious people 
these people who are opposed to God, they, God has given them to Jonathan and his armor bearer. And really, the battle is not very long as far as the text is concerned. Uh, it just happens very quickly. All this, this, uh, this lead up to the, to the battle is pretty long, but then you get to the battle and it's just one verse here. Well, really, verse verse uh, 13 climbed up and puts him to death and so did his armor bear. And in the end, verse 14, there were 20 of the Philistines who were killed. And then God did the rest. God, I mean, God was in that, but, but God also did the rest by causing the rest of the Philistines to tremble and then sending an earthquake to make it even more uh, spectacular. And so we have in verses 16 through 23... That Jonathan takes first. We have Jonathan leads Israel by faith, and then verses 16 to 23, the Lord saves Israel. Here we see that Saul learns of the Philistine retreat in verse 17. He hears about the commotion, and so the first thing that Saul wants to do is he wants to hear from God, and this is a, a noble thing for Saul to do. Should Israel join Jonathan in battle? And so he happens to have Ahijah, the high priest, and the ark with them. And so they're going to take a little time to speak to God and see what God has to say. But you know what happens when, when things start to get a little bit more frantic? When they start to hear the commotion a little bit louder? Look at what Saul does here in verse 19. So first in verse 18, he says, Bring the ark of God here. In other words, we want to speak to God. We want to hear what God has to say. Verse 19, while Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Never mind. You know, I, I did want to hear from God, but, but, but I don't want or need to hear from God now because if I wait to hear from God, then I might miss out on my opportunity to win in the battle. And the point is for Saul, it's all about him saving face. It's all about him maintaining his position and his power. He doesn't want the, the frightened army of Israel to now become disheartened because for the first time now in, in days, they are now heartened to, to, to join in the battle. They come out of their cliffs and their caves according to verses 21 and 22. But in the end, notice, because I think Jonathan does this by faith, God receives the credit. Verse 23, The Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. So yes, Jonathan took a great risk. Yes, Jonathan stepped out and did something great by faith. But in the end, God received the glory. And that's what faith does. It brings glory to God. God's the one who is seen as great in the end. But notice the next verse because this victory is soiled by the misguided leadership of Saul. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath. Here, in verses 24-46, through 46, we see that those who are concerned about their position and power are ill-equipped to lead the people of God. Those who are concerned about their position and power are ill-equipped to lead the people of God. Those who are concerned about the approval of God and God's glory, they're going to do great things for God. That's what Jonathan does. But those who are concerned about their own position, their own power... They're ill-equipped to lead God's people. And Saul is that man. Saul leads Israel not in faith but in foolishness. We already saw Saul's inaction in verse 2 and we saw Saul's disregard of God's voice in verse 19. Here we see Saul's rash vow. The people are hard-pressed because of their poor position that they've been put in because Saul puts them in this position. 
This day should have been a day of great joy. It should have been a great rout of the Philistine army. But instead, Saul put his men in a weak position because he calls out a curse on any man who eats before sundown. In other words, no one can eat until the next day. Remember, the Jewish day ends at, at the last of the light. And so at the first of the night, 6 o'clock roughly, then that, that would be the start of the next day. So he said, listen, as long as it's light, you cannot eat. And if anyone does, I will kill them. Now, perhaps it's not clear why Saul would have this kind of vow put on his people. Perhaps he thought God would be compelled to give him favor for such a sacrifice on their part. But it actually served to make the battle harder on them. And I think Saul, again, is concerned not about God, but about his own legacy, about Saul's own legacy. He faithlessly seeks a greater victory. That, hey, this is going to really highlight what we did. The history books are going to highlight what I did here. Because I'm the one who gets the victory. I'm the one who routed the Philistines. And I did it even on having them do it on an empty stomach. Well, Israel sinned. Well, first, Jonathan's violation of his dad's vow. Jonathan doesn't know what's going on. Let me just read these verses. Um, Let's start at the middle of verse 24. For Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening and, and until I have avenged myself of my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. It has not been great. In other words, it would have been great if my father hadn't, hadn't hamstrung us in this way. Here in verses 25 to 27, the story slows down. And, and this battle's raging. They're, they're going after the Philistines and it slows down until you, the camera kind of zooms in on this little uh, honeycomb and, and all these people are, are kind of drooling over it and, and Jonathan goes past it and he dips his staff into it and he holds it to his mouth and he eats. Someone tells him, Jonathan, you're not supposed to do that. Your dad said not to. Um, you're going to be cursed because of this. Jonathan said, how much more difficult has my father made it on us? Well, Israel wasn't done. Uh, the battle was still raging and, and they were still chasing the Philistines. When the next day finally came, which was about 6 o'clock in the evening, that's when their day started, then notice what they do in verse... Uh, let's read verses 31 to 35. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very weary people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourself among the peoples and say to them, Each of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. 
So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So the the people here don't they don't uh, they don't break the curse or break the oath that that Saul puts on them and that eating during the day. But when it when it crosses over to the next day, they are like ravenous animals, aren't they? They couldn't wait to eat. And so they're so hungry that, that instead of draining the blood like they were required to do in Leviticus, they, without cooking the meat, they just eat the meat raw. They're so hungry. And the reason for their sin, in verse 31, at the end of the verse, notice, and the people were very weary. We saw in verse 28 at the end, the people were weary. They're, they're tired. They're hungry. The people were weary. They hadn't had any food. Remember what Jonathan said in verse 30, how much more if only the people had eaten freely. Right? The people were very weary. In order to appreciate how hungry these men were, you need to recognize that between Michmash and Aijalon was a distance of about 20 miles through hilly terrain. So it's not like Michigan miles where you're just almost all flat, right? It's through hilly terrain, 20 miles. They've been trekking through here, chasing after the Philistines without any food. And I don't know about you, but, but if I have to walk further from my recliner to the refrigerator, I need a break. So I'm not trying to justify what the Lord had clearly prohibited in Leviticus 17. It doesn't matter how hungry or how tired you are, you should have drained the blood and cooked the meat. But what I am trying to do is to show you that it's not just the people who bear responsibility for the sin. Isn't it true that many times we can't just pin a sin just on that individual person? Yes, they are responsible for their own actions. But is it not true that, that parents in many ways bear responsibility for the sins of their children? Pastors in many ways bear the responsibility for the sins of the congregation. Presidents in many ways bear the responsibility for the sins of the people. You see, Saul bears some responsibility. He's the one who put them in that bad situation and made it difficult for them. Now, they ultimately have the choice. And so they don't get out of responsibility, but, but Saul takes some of the responsibility. And so he responds to their sin in verses 33-35. And he says, roll a stone to me. We need to set up an altar. And this is the first altar he would make. It's not clear what exactly he's doing here. He could be setting up the altar to slaughter and eat properly. That seems to be the case, right? He says, make sure that you're not eating the blood. He could be seeking counsel from God. He could be commemorating the victory that they had. But, but it seems to me he's trying to get things right with God. He's trying to say, God, we messed up, and now we're trying to get right with God. And so now he speaks to the Lord in verses 36 and 37. And notice what he says, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and take the spoil among them until the morning light, and let us leave a man, uh, not, not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul is not speaking to God here. He's actually speaking to the people and saying, Hey, let's, let's go. Let's go finish this job that we started. Let's finish this battle. And, and the high priest says, You know what? Let's talk to God first. And so Saul says, All right, let's do it. Verse 37, Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But notice God's response. He did not answer him on that day. Saul said, Let, let's continue the attack. And the priest says, no, I think we should talk to God. And Saul, Saul says, okay, let's talk to God. But, 
But God says, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. God's blessing on Saul was long gone. And Saul didn't even know it. When God was ready to speak in verse 19, Saul was unwilling to listen. And when Saul was ready to listen, God was unwilling to speak. And so in verse 38, Saul blames God's silence on the sin of the people. He says, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. So the reason that God's not responding to me is because of the sin of you people. And so let's figure out who, is it, who it is that sinned against God in breaking this oath about not eating during the day. And so if Saul's first vow wasn't bad enough, his second vow is even worse. He says in verse 39, basically he's confirming the previous vow. He says, For as the Lord lives, whoever who, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan my son, so even if it is Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Whoever broke this oath is going to die today. But not one of all the people answered. Nobody, nobody would rat on Jonathan, right? No one would say that it was Jonathan the date. And so Saul says, all right, fine, we're going to cast lots and we'll find out that way. And so let's, let's divide up the people. We'll divide between the king's family and all you people and let's see who did it. And if the lot falls on you, then we're going to keep narrowing it down until we find the exact person who ate when you weren't supposed to eat. And the lot falls on Saul's family, probably surprisingly to Saul. He's thinking, wait, wait a second, I didn't eat, so who else could it be? And so he says, cast the lot again between me and Jonathan, verse 42. And the lot falls on Jonathan. And notice what Saul's response here is in verse 43. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. You know, if you're... you're you're uh, sure about this, Dad. Make it happen. Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Saul doubles down on his vow to kill Jonathan. He'd said before, Even if it's Jonathan, I will kill him for breaking this oath. Turns out it was Jonathan. And so, in, in, again, he, I think he's trying to save face here in front of the people. How bad will he look? How weak will he look as a leader if he says, well, you know, I'll let my son pass. You know, the only thing worse than making a bad promise is following through on a bad promise. I mean, two sins are not better than one. Promising to do something that is opposed to God is bad, but actually doing something that is opposed to God is doubly bad. I'm not talking about your marriage, okay? Some of you are thinking, oh, i got a way out. No, that, I don't think that was a bad promise. I think that was a good promise. I'm talking about, let's say that I say, if I promise, if someone steals my car, I promise to kill them. If someone steals my car, I promise to kill them. That's a bad promise. Do you know what's worse than that? It's following through on that promise. And apparently, Saul here thinks that the people will discredit him as their leader if he doesn't follow through on this bad promise. But the opposite is actually true because what's going to happen is that the people are going to spare Jonathan. They're going, to, they're going to speak to Saul's reason and say, are you sure you want to do this? Because we think Jonathan is the hero here, not the goat. Verses 45 and 46, Israel saves Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. 
So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Israel evaluated God's leading differently than Saul did, didn't they? They saw, they saw God leading not to kill Jonathan, but to spare Jonathan, because Jonathan was the one who actually worked with God to win the battle. Jonathan was responsible for the victory. They would not have had this victory with the Philistines. There would have not have been this much fear in the Philistines had it not been for Jonathan. And so they rescued him. And Saul responds to the people with the sort of flip-floppiness that he, he has in his character. He agrees to spare Jonathan. And do you see what's driving Saul here? Not principle, but it's the winds of popular approval. Right? He has no moral bearings. He is concerned first and, foremost, first and foremost about his hold on the throne of Israel. Do you know what the rest of Saul's life is going to be about? It's going to be about paranoia and a maniacal pursuit of protecting his throne, even from his own uh, servant, David. David's not trying to usurp his throne. Even though he has several chances to kill Saul, he does not. But Saul thinks that everybody's out to take my throne from me. See, Saul is king, but Jonathan is the one who's acting like a king. And he seems to be more fit to be a king even than his father. But the difference between Saul and Jonathan is that Jonathan is not concerned about getting or keeping the throne. He is concerned primarily about serving God and that you know, the throne would not ultimately be passed to Jonathan. Because of Saul's disgrace, God takes the throne from his family and gives it to David's family. Well, in verse 46, the Philistines return home, and I think the, the victory could have much, been much better, as Jonathan says in verse 30. It could have been much better if Saul had, had been a better leader. But here in verses 47 to 52, we have a summary of Saul's leadership. Now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishvi and Malchishua. And the name of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merib and the name of the younger Mishal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz. And the name of the captain of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any mighty man or any valiant men, he attached him to his staff. Now if this is the only thing we knew about King Saul, we would commend him, right? He, he seems to be a man of great military power. He seems to be a man of wisdom. He's painted here in a good light in comparison to the last couple of chapters where he's a passive, undiscerning people pleaser. And I think what we learn from here is something that we learn very similarly to looking at the book of the Kings, which is that the legacy of any given king is not as black and white as we like to make it out. They were good, they were bad. But sometimes the, the good kings are stained with some dark times of, of turning away from God. And sometimes the bad kings are, are um, seeking to serve God. And I think Saul is painted primarily as an evil king, but here we see him as doing some great things and keeping the Philistines at bay. 
Those who are concerned more about the approval of God than about their position or power will do great things for God. Here in chapter 14, we have a contrast between a man who trusts God and is concerned about God's glory and then a man who uses God to go after what is most valuable to him. And that is the advancement or the maintenance of his own position and power. So let me just leave you with two applications tonight. Number one, beware of the power-hungry leader. Beware of the power-hungry leader. This is Saul. He is passive against the Philistines. He forces the people to take an oath to not to eat for an entire day. He fails to take some responsibility for the sin of the soldiers who ate the raw meat. He tries to gain forgiveness by an erecting, by, by an, erecting an altar. He vows to kill his own son. And if we look at his whole life and all the, the, uh, the battles that he had won, we might say, you know, Saul was a success for Israel as a king. He was a good deliverer. He was better than the judges because he lasted a lot longer. And even religiously, in some cases, he's seeking after God. He slays his thousands, but inwardly, he's full of dead men's, dead men's bones. In chapter 15, God will officially reject Saul as king. That is, the Holy Spirit of God who has been anointed and been given, who's come on Saul, will now be taken from Saul and put on David. That is, that his theocratic rule will come to an end in chapter 15. So beware of the power-hungry leader. Number two, step out in faith and take a risk for God. Step out in faith and take a risk for God. Think of the consequences that your seemingly small act of faith can have on the people of God. Maybe you're looking around and thinking, no, there's no fear of God in this place. There's no fear of God in this church. There's no fear of God in my home. I'm the only one with deep abiding faith in God. And what can I possibly do to revive the people of God? And my answer to you is, only the Lord knows. How would Jonathan know that such a small act of faith, you know, scaling this cliff, attacking and killing 20 Philistines out of just thousands and thousands. Do you remember in chapter 13, wasn't it 330,000 Philistines? How could he know that that small victory would really do anything? But do you know what? God did use that small act of faith to actually rout the Philistines. Do you see the results? God used that small victory by Jonathan as a catalyst to send the Philistines in a panic. And God used that small victory as the means to revive and rally the troops of Israel who were disheartened. Right? They were in hiding until they found out about this act of faith that Jonathan did. They came out and valiantly pursued the Philistines. What about you in your family or, or in this church? Which one of you is going to take a small step of faith, trusting in God in order to see what great and mighty thing He might do through the rest of us? How do you know if God's going to work? Until you take that step. Perhaps God will be in it. Maybe He will choose to use your small victory as the catalyst to discourage our enemies and to revive and rally the saints who are tired. Where does this kind of faith come from? Where does this kind of faith come from that causes us to step out and take a risk? Ultimately, it comes from God's Spirit. 
God has to work within us to to initiate and, and to accomplish this. But in an immediate sense, it comes from a proper conviction of who God is. That God is powerful to accomplish what He wants. Look back at verse 6 again and see this. Jonathan said, Come and let us cross over. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So where does Jonathan's confidence come from? It comes from his conviction that God is powerful to save. And that leads to an expectation in the middle of verse 6, which is, maybe the Lord's going to do something here. I don't know if He's going to. Here's how Dale, uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts it. He says, God can do mighty works with very small resources, and God may be happy to do it in this case. But how can we know? Unless we place ourselves at His disposal. And so, Christians, step out in faith. Take a risk for God because faith-fueled risk results in glory going to the proper place. When you act in faith for the, the approval of God, for God's desire, and you do it according to God's way, then did you notice who got the credit? It was in verse 23, the Lord delivered Israel on this day. Jonathan even states it himself. We will know, verse 10, that the Lord has given them into our hands. And then verse 23, the Lord delivered Israel on that day. When we step out and take risks on behalf of God, by faith, according to His prescription, then God gets the glory in the end. And that's what we want to see. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being patient with us being long-suffering with us when we are all too much like Saul, um, sometimes too passive, sometimes overly aggressive, and seeking our own position and power. And so please forgive us when we are like that. But Lord, thank You for the example of Jonathan and his desire to see You glorified, to see great works accomplished through You. He wasn't going to just sit back and allow things to just pass by or, or take place, but, but he was going to be uh, a man who took risks on behalf of you and, and see you be glorified in the end. And Lord, help us to get past ourselves and, and our own egos and help us to turn away from that kind of thinking and recognize that, that we exist for your glory. We are bought with a price and we are designed to give ourselves in full submission to You. And so that, that's going to require us in some cases to wait on You, to be patient, not run ahead of You um, where You haven't chosen for us to go, but in other cases to step out and take risks. And Lord, the, the challenge for us is determining when to wait and when to take a risk. And we pray that You'd give us wisdom in that as we come to understand Your Word more and, and apply those principles that we see in Your Word to life circumstances. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.